Welcome back to Plenary Session. These are the Plenary Session trial summaries. I've got a good one today. I've got Quantum First, and we're going to talk about it, Quizartnib and FLT3ITD, Frontline AML. And really should be should be Quantum Second, because it ain't the first it ain't the first drug to prove this. But before I get to that, I want a little disclaimer about these videos. I put out a series of videos in honor of ASCO on the YouTube channel and also on the Plenary Session podcast feed. These break down these clinical trials. They get into the weeds. They range from highly critical shine, what a piece of, what a terrible study, to highly laudatory dostarlamab. And I've even had more conversations offline about dostarlamab, and people are really excited about it. And I actually, maybe I'm even more excited about it going forward. But today we're going to talk about quantum first. If you are listening to the audio feed, I'm going to encourage you to go on the video feed for this. The video feed, I've got slides, I've got visuals. It's going to be a lot better experience for you. Look, I know what you're thinking. You prefer audio. Hey, I do too. I don't like watching a lot of videos. I like audio. But for this clinical trial series, make an exception. Go to the video feed. You're going to learn a lot more. And that's what this is, Plenary Session. Of course, a podcast that teaches you about oncology. Let's talk about quantum first. Quizartnib or Frontline AML. Over the course of this video, I'm going to argue that this trial is unethical. It is unethical, of course. It's in violation of the Declaration of Helsinki. The control arm gets beneath the global best standard of care. But the trialists have an excuse. They say that, you know, that's acceptable because if it weren't for this trial, you know, they would have gotten worse care. At least they have a shot at better care because of our trial. You're welcome. That's what they say. And they even talk about reforming the system from within. They keep saying they're going to reform it from within, but it appears to be just as terrible as when, as when before they were even in the system. So I don't know if they're doing much on the inside, but I'm going to argue in this video why their arguments that these un, these delinquent clinical trial control arms are acceptable are ultimately flawed and futile. They are, of course, in violation of the Declaration of Helsinki. You can read that. They have a section on placebo-controlled clinical trials, but there's more to that because their standard has a, has a huge problem with it, and you're going to want to stay tuned to the end of this video because I'm going to explain what that problem is. It'll be worth your time. Let's talk about quantum first. This is the slide that I see being tweeted, roundly shared. This is from the, the oral sessions at EHA, the European Hematology Association. And let me read it to you. Conclusions in this pivotal phase three trial, quantum first. Quizartin had been proved overall survival when combined with standard induction and consolidation therapy and continued for up to three years as a single agent in patients 18 to 75 with newly diagnosed FLT3 ITD AML. Clinically meaningful improvement in RFS, reduced CR, and longer duration of CR may underpin the OS benefit. Safety of quizartinib combined with intensive chemotherapy and its continuation monotherapy was generally manageable with no new safety signals. Nothing, nothing should assure you like no new safe, no new safety signals don't mean it's safe. It just means we didn't find anything we didn't already know. It's actually kind of a stupid thing to say, but that's that's the le- that's the le- that's the medical writer lingo du jour. People love saying there were no new safety signals. I didn't learn anything new. Were there safety signals? Well, of course there were. Yes, but there weren't new ones. I mean, there certainly weren't new. They were known and anticipated. These data have potential to change the standard of care for the treatment of adult patients with newly diagnosed FLT3 ITD AML. How could it, I mean, change it where? <laughs> That's what we're going to talk about in this video because it had already been changed for a long time in many of the countries that participated in this study. Um, but, uh, and, and your drug is going to be so expensive, it's not going to change it in the countries that didn't already change it. So you're really probably not changing it anywhere except you're getting a regulatory authorization in the USA, which is going to pad your, pad your bank account. And That's what this is all about. Let's not forget. 
One point to make right off the bat, if you look at global spending on cancer drugs, you will find that more than 50%, perhaps even two thirds or three quarters of cancer drug spending is in the United States. We're the buyers. We're the people who are paying you the money. We're the global market share in the United States. And that's what this whole game is about. We can dance around and say we want EMA approval, but the reality is companies want the U.S. market share because the U.S. market share puts food on the table. That's what this whole game is about. This trial is going to be used, I think, for U.S. regulatory authorization. They also want the EU market share. Don't get me wrong. The EU market share is good, but I don't see them so, so I don't see them seeking the market share in say India, in say Sub-Saharan Africa. That's not the market share they're really going for. And when they run clinical trials that recruit at sites that they don't actually seek the market share actively, one can worry that they're actually not really doing it as a good actor. And I'm going to prove this to you by the end of this. Let's go through the case. This is it, quantum first. Quizartinib with standard of care chemotherapy is continuation therapy in patients with FLT3 ITD. Uh, I don't know how much I should explain here. I assume you know FLT3 internal tandem duplication and tyrosine kinase domain mutations. I assume you know standard of care induction therapy, uh, 7 plus 3, uh, with ARAC and with some uh, uh, anthracycline, typically donorubicin or even idorubicin, something like that. I assume we are all on the same page. This is not going to be a Leukemia 101 video, okay? You got to go find that elsewhere. I hope you're entering as at least a year two fellow. Okay, that's, that's what I want for this video because I didn't plan on unpacking all these terms. I'm gonna assume you know it. I remember where I was when I saw the Ratify study results. I'm gonna show you that in a second, but this is the study, Daichi Sanko. They're testing their drug, a FLT3 inhibitor, in this setting against chemotherapy alone. They're not testing it against a FLT3 ITD, a FLT3 inhibitor. They're testing against chemotherapy alone. That's gonna, that's gonna come back to us. This is, the clinicaltrials.gov thing. There's no published paper yet to my knowledge. If anyone knows the paper, put it in the links below, but I haven't seen it. This is the timeline. This is the timeline. In May 2008, a randomized control trial called Ratify began accruing. And this randomized control trial randomized patients to the promiscuous or dirty tyrosine kinase inhibitor mitostorin, which is, a, in addition to other things, a FLT3, a FLT3 inhibitor. And this trial accrued over these years the Kaplan-Meier is shown above. It had a very misleading press release, of course, because people highlighted the median improvement in overall survival, but one Kaplan-Meier curve settles down, settles in with a plateau just below the median, one settles in just above the median. So the median's improved from 25 to 75 months, but that, of course, is, a, is, is far bigger than the actual hazard ratio, which is still good, but it ain't that good. It's still good. And what's really important here is that there looks like there's an increase in potentially long-term durable fraction of people who don't have, uh, who have not died. I mean, there's an increase in that tail of the curve, and that's really important here. But there's no doubt about it. This is a statistically significant result. You can go back and look into who actually paid for the Ratify study. Who got rich from it? Who paid for it? You look into that. I don't want to bore you with that. But who got, who paid for it and who got rich from it? Think about that. This study led to the press release. Press release, December 15th. Novartis drug, mitostorin, improves overall survival by 23% in a global phase three study of AML patients with the three mutations. That was December 2015. By 2017, the New England Journal of Medicine had published this article by the summer of 2017. And I believe that I had actually seen the figure a little bit beforehand, and maybe it was at ASH or somewhere like that. But by the summer of 2017, everyone has seen this publication. It is in the New England Journal of Medicine, and this is... The practice changing paper it immediately changed practice i was working at the time at a leukemia center i was attending on leukemia service and lo and behold that practice it changed it changed 
like that. It was changed. Don't give me any, don't play any games about this. People with insurance in this country, the moment that drug was approved, they had access to that drug and that practice changed. There was no delay to change. It was quite a change. This was a persuasive result. Ratified accrued from May, from May 2008 to October 2011, and the results were in by June 2017. The OS benefit. The paper came out June 23rd, 2017. Boom. Then, quantum, quantum first. Huh? It was not really first because it started accruing patients in 2016. They had already known about the press release, so presumably, oh, I didn't do this, but later when the paper is published, we can cross-reference and see how many authors are shared. I'd be curious because my good my friend and colleague. Um, Mani Moyudin has done that for myeloma trials where the same kind of issue happened. But in 20, uh, and, and there are the same authors suggesting that they can't play dumb. You know what the trial showed. You can't play dumb. And you can't play dumb you didn't know about the press release. You knew about the press release. These sorts of things in the community of people doing this work are pretty much the only news that you'd be talking about around the water cooler that day. You knew about it. 2016, you start accruing. You had a little bit of time before these results were widely known and disseminated, and that happened real quick, 2017, but you continued to accrue. And when you're accruing, you're randomizing people to, place to, to placebo, to no FLIP3 ITD inhibitor. The moment you had these results, you needed to amend your protocol. The control arm should have been mitostorin. The treatment arm should have been quizartinib. And, you know, if you're saying, well, we don't think quizartinib is better than mitostorin, run a non-inferiority trial. There's nothing that says you can't. Uh, you got a lot of cash, Daiji. You can run a non-inferiority study. Pick a nice little tight margin. You can see what the upper bound of the margin should be because you see the Kaplan-Meier curves for the original study. You don't want a margin so big that you might possibly be the same as placebo, but you can pick a tight margin, just a couple percentage point margin margin and show you're non-inferior. You could even do an equivalence randomized control trial. You don't have to continue to randomize people one-to-one -to, -one to placebo. That is terrible. If your own mother or father were being randomized after 2017, I'm pretty sure every investigator on this study would not have allowed their mother or father to get randomized to that control arm. They would have found a way to get Midastorin. They would have called the company. They would have got, used the insurance in the United States. They would have gotten that drug, but some, I got another little ace up my sleeve. Hang on for that. And that's an important telling point, though. If you wouldn't, in good conscience, put your mother or father on that control arm, you need to stop what you're doing. You need to look in the mirror. You need to actually halt your clinical trial. Every patient on that clinical trial should be treated the way you would treat your mother and father. By the fall of 2017, by 2018, I could not, in good conscience, deprive my mother or father from a flip 3 inhibitor if they had flip 3 itd leukemia i wouldn't do it it would be it would be terrible i mean I, I and i think most people would feel the same and so how could i in good conscience randomize this trial good news is i didn't because i couldn't because it I wouldn't it would be terrible unconscionable we're going to talk about this let's hear the arguments that these trialists are, are coming up with the the ones who say they're going to reform it from the inside the inside that we'll see we'll see what they have to say 2019, they finish accrual. These results appear in 2020. And here's the Kaplan-Meier curve. Wow, wow, wow. They're celebrating. They're so happy. You know, eh, eh, eh. doesn't look so different. Doesn't look so different. Now, there are a few differences in this study, but this Kaplan-Meier curve doesn't look so different. It's more or less the same result. They recapitulate. Okay, FLT3 inhibitors work in FLT3 ITD, de novo AML, in combination with chemotherapy and continue thereafter. Okay, yeah. Uh, I wouldn't call it quantum first. I'd call it quantum, oh, confirmatory trial. It's a confirm, yeah, thanks. You confirmed what I already knew. And along the way, you know, did some damage to some people. You probably don't seem to care about that, but I care about that. I think it's an important failure of our system. Differences, the original study was mostly U.S. and Canada. The subsequent study was mostly the European Union and Asia. 
The original study excluded people over the age of 60. That was a bad move, actually. Very bad move, because you want to do a randomized control trial on people representative of the disease. I don't think you should be excluding leukemia patients over the age of 60. By the way, those are also called leukemia patients. They're for the majority of leukemia patients. This new trial goes 18 to 75. But even if they want to play at, by a stickler for the rules, I will say two things. One, in the United States, the standard of care did change for people over the age of 60. People were giving them mitostorin, uh, and I, it was recommended. Nobody said that 60, 61, there's some magic cutoff there. Uh, age is, it, 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 it isn't an effect modifier like that. It's a linear variable. Um, but they, they could have, I think, arguably done 61 to 75. But I, I think there's a reason why they don't. They want all the market share. They want all, they're greedy. They could have arguably done 61 to 75 and said, you know, that standard of care is still uncertain. We want to know if our product works. And the elderly, they didn't. They went after the whole market share. And by doing that, they condemned the 55-year-old person who should have and off protocol would have in many places been treated with 7 plus 3 and mitostorin to be deprived of that mitostorin. That's what they did. And that is unconscionable to me. Boom, I got you. European Union, EMA, September 2017. You have no leg to stand on if you are accruing in the European Union. This product was approved. Mitostorin was approved in the European Union as of September 2017. It was approved. What are you doing? That's a... This is this is this is a huge blow to your argument that we somehow were able to yeah, accrue to a control arm that didn't have mitostorin. It was the standard of care in the Europe. Now you're going to say, oh well, some countries may not have paid for it. I don't know. It's all country by country. But if that's the argument, if they can't pay for mitostorin, guess what? They're going to say for quizartinib, they're not going to be able to pay for it because it's equally expensive. It's horrendously expensive. So that argument doesn't pass muster. I think. You're running a pretty problematic study. I wouldn't be proud of this. I would be embarrassed by this. Again, I come back to the principle. If you, in in January 2018, your own mother or father had this condition, would you allow them to be randomized to the control arm of this study? And if the answer is no, and I know the answer is no, because look at that survival benefit. You don't get Latin leukemia that often. The answer is no. What are you doing? What are you doing? Who are you helping? What is your priority in life? What is your oath? We'll come, come back to that. Unethical control arm. Unethical control arms like this, which are really poised for U.S. and European Union marketing authorization, they don't help the U.S. or the European Union because we already are using the other drug. We've been using it for a while. We already use mitostorin. I don't know if quizartinib is better than mitostorin, worse than mitostorin. It was never tested against mitostorin. I can't say it's the same because you tested against placebo a few years later. Lots of things have changed. I just know that placebo, that, my, that quizartinib is better than chemotherapy alone. Mitostorin is better than chemotherapy. I don't really know which one of these is better. It doesn't really help us when you run these clinical trials. It doesn't help us. It also doesn't help global sites because guess what? If they can't afford mitostorin and they're accepting the control arm without it, you think they're going to afford quizartinib when your trial ends? They're not going to be able to afford quizartinib. It helps neither party. It exploits global sites to seek regulatory approval in the United States so they get our lucrative market share. But then after the trial is over, they never get the drug again. And the same thing happens, venetoclax, ibrutinib, et cetera, et cetera. They go exploit global sites. This is a huge exploitation. Now, this is what trialists have come up with. Their newest argument. Their newest argument is this. It does help 50% of the trial patients. Look, we know we're not going to get mitostorin long run, and we know we're not going to get quizartinib long run, but by running this trial and accruing here, we are at least able to give 50% of the people who accrue here quizartinib. And maybe that's not everybody, that's somebody, that somebody's getting a better shot. And that sounds very compelling until you really think about it. It sounds compelling, but here, here are the problems with that argument. One, 
it really assumes efficacy. So what you're saying is you knew by running this trial that there's a 50% chance people get access to this new drug. Uh, it sounds like you believe the new drug's a winner, but if the new drug's a winner, why are you running the trial? You no longer have equipoise. I think there's a little tension there between claiming something to be a benefit and having equipoise to say the trial is worth testing. One cannot do both. That you can, can't claim that this is a benefit to 50% of trial participants while having the equipoise to run the study. I think you are at an attention. But there's another problem, which is just think about what you're doing to global market incentives. Think about it. Think about it a second. If we live in a world where you're saying the only ethical justification for the clinical trial it's not that we'll get access to the product if the trial is successful, which is the standard that I, uh, Sean Mylan Cody, and Hemnath Kumar had written about in the Journal of Global Oncology, maybe in 2012 or some, 2014. We have written an article about the ethics of running clinical trials in low and middle income countries. We talked about that. We believe that one prerequisite is when the trial ends, it should be scalable in that country. You're saying it doesn't have to be scalable. It's sufficient that half the participants receive the better drug, receive the experimental drug. That's a sufficient benefit to justify this. Think about what you're doing to the market incentives globally. Companies will want to keep the prices high in your country. They'll want to keep the prices so high, they strangle your population from getting these products. The less they give you access to the products, the more they can come back again and again and run their clinical trials in conditions that favor their products. Think about it. Just think about what you're incentivizing the company to do. I'm a major pharmaceutical firm, and let's say I make a second, in class, second line or third line breast cancer drug. Let's say it's HER2 breast cancer. It can be whatever cancer you want. Second line colon cancer drug or third line colon cancer drug. Let's say I go up against dealer's choice chemotherapy. I have a survival advantage. I get the United States drug approval. I got I to gotta earn some money, and so I start selling that in the U.S. But then I come to your country, and you come in to me, and you say, let's negotiate a deal. This drug is good. We helped you accrue for the pivotal study. I say, thank you very much. Yes, you did. And then I say, let's and give us a deal. You can't sell it at the U.S. price. Let's be reasonable. Netherlands is not paying the U.S. price. Norway is not paying the U.S. price. Give it to us at a deal. And I say, hmm, okay, what do you want for this? And then they say, you know, give it to us at, you know, one-tenth the U.S. price, one-twentieth the U.S. price. And I say, yeah, you know what? Uh, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to play that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to lose that much money. And you say, listen, no, we know what your, your manufacturer costs. You're still getting money on top. You're going to make even more money in U.S. market. Just give us a deal. I say, you know what? I pass. I pass. And you know why they're going to pass? Then I have a different drug product and I want to run it in the frontline setting. Or I have the same drug. I want to move it up a line. I can come back to that country and I can do it again. I can run my clinical trial, new drug against standard of care control arm. I know they're not going to get my good drug second line, right? I have two, let's say, HER2 directed therapies that I'm pursuing simultaneously in a drug development portfolio. One pursuing primarily in the second line setting. Maybe it has an antibody drug conjugate. And the other I'm simultaneously pursuing as a dual HER2 antibody therapy in the frontline setting. And I can go back and, you know, I'm being a little facetious, but, you, but anyone who's read the book Malignant knows what I'm talking about. But it doesn't matter that specific example. It could be any specific example. I am a drug company. I am making multiple products. Some of those products work in the same space. Some of the trials I'm running are in the second or third line setting. Once I get my marketing authorization by going to that country and running my clinical trial against the available or physician's choice control arm, I will want to strangle that market share. I don't want them to have access to that drug because then if I pursue a different drug or the same drug in the front line, I'm guaranteed that upon progression, they don't get access to this drug because I didn't make it affordable in the first place, which gives me the chance to get the easier win in the front line, both for PFS, of course, that's easy. That only depends on protocol-directed care, but also OS. 
I'm going to get a bigger OS benefit. And then you know what? If you really think about that market incentive across the space, if I'm a drug company and I make an antibody that's really good and I know I have a certain patent life, that patent life clock starts ticking. And so then a few years into my patent life, I decide I want to humanize this. Why do I want to humanize it? Well, humanizing is better, don't you know? And you know what? This actually has IgG3 uh, and IgG4 activity. It actually has multiple um, It has multiple ways in which it uh, has cell death, including complemented media cell death. You know, I tell some bullshit story about why my new antibody is better. The first one was chimeric. It was part mouse. The new one is all humanized or human. Some bullshit story. And then what do I do? Maybe I'll tweak the dose a little bit. I'll increase the dose. The first dose was, let's say, some dose by body surface area per meter squared. The new dose is a flat dose and a little bit higher, you know, calculated as if you were getting 2.4 BSA for the first drug. I play these games. Why do I play these games? The first drug had a shot clock. That shot clock was a patent lie for exclusivity. The second drug has modifications to the product. It's very similar. Maybe it's no better, but it don't have that shot clock. Now, if I had allowed you, that country out there, to get access to my first drug, which I don't want to do, now I'm disincentivized from doing that, then I have to come into your country and run my trial against your drug, maybe a non-inferiority study or equivalent study or superiority study against your drug, and that is a lot harder for me to win. But if I strangled that country and basically said, I'm not going to sell the drug at any price, at any low price at all, I can't lose money, I'll tell myself, then I've actually created a system in where I can go back again, test my new drug against placebo, justify it by saying, well, at least 50% of people got access to the new drug. And of course, you know, I didn't expect them to afford the drug thereafter. Companies can exploit, exploit your nation. They're incentivized to keep the prices high in your nation so you do not get access to these drugs. You don't know the devil's bargain you are playing if you justify these trials by saying 50% of trial participants get it. That's good enough for me. If it's not scalable in your country thereafter, which is the ethical prerequisite that myself and colleagues have written about in JGO, there is a direct incentive to not make those products available. I don't want to make it available for my broader portfolio. I don't want to make it available for my next-in-class drugs. I don't want to make it available, period. Now, there may be some interesting dynamics about the pressures between two different companies doing these kinds of things, um, but uh, uh, I don't want to bore you by walking through all that. I think this is already quite complicated. I'm going to try one more time to explain it very simply to you. If you are sitting there and you're a trialist and you tell yourself the little story that makes you sleep easy at night, that even though you wouldn't have randomized your own mother or father to that control arm, and I know you wouldn't have because I know, I know you believe the results of Ratify, but you say, well, I went to a place where, you know, if it weren't for me, they would have gotten nothing. At least because of me, 50% of people got quizartinib. Now, of course, when the trial ends, I'm pretty confident the makers of quizartinib, Daichi, I can't control them. They're going to price it so high that nobody else will benefit in the future in my country or in that country. But at least thanks to me, there's 17 people, there's 55 people, there's 82 people who got that that otherwise wouldn't. And maybe seven people are alive as a result of that, thanks to me. And that's, you know, it's not a 7,000. I wish it were. The world is unfair, but seven is better than zero. Seven is better than zero. That's how you justify it. And what I'm telling you is that by doing that, by signing that devil's bargain, what you're doing, and you don't even realize you're doing it, is you're creating incentives for the company to no longer make their products affordable to you. They have broad portfolios of drug products, and they want to come back again and again and run the trials in settings where the backdrop of therapy is inferior. That's the easiest way to win. No one may be doing this intentionally, but this is clearly an unintentional consequence of the system, the way it's being incentivized. You are actually incentivizing the companies to price drugs further and further out of reach, which work by Dan Goldstein and colleagues shows that it's the case. The next two arguments I have for why this is just a terrible idea is that what you're really saying is that the other things you're doing is that 
there's nothing to stop you from taking this to the logical conclusion, which is that companies can exploit war, famine, crisis. They can exploit this in many ways. For instance, if there was a country on the brink of war, on the brink of famine, and it had total collapse of economic system, um, uh, yet somehow the hospitals are still working, uh, which they must be because people are always getting sick, a, com- a, country, a company can go into that setting, and by your own account, they can randomize somebody with a pneumonia to antibiotics or no antibiotics. As you say, the, the, the standard of care globally is antibiotics in the control arm. And even in places that are low and middle income countries, people with pneumonia get access to some antibiotics. But because of the war, the famine, the, the civil unrest in that country, there is a strangulation of the supply chain in antibiotics. There are no antibiotics. And so, ergo, according to you, it is ethical to do antibiotic against placebo, no antibiotic, because at least 50% of people will get the new antibiotic. And so I can go to your country, run novel antibiotic trials against n- placebo, nothing. I can pick war-torn regions. I can pick dictatorships. I can pick places that are facing economic collapse, places that are facing extreme sanctions and run my trials. That's what you're saying is ethical. I would say that that is deeply unethical and that this principle is a broken principle. The third argument, what you're doing, you're incentivizing the companies from lobbying to lobby against global healthcare systems in low and middle income countries. You know how much money these companies have to lobby? You know who you're playing with? They're the most powerful lobbying firm in the United States, in the Western world. This is one of the most lucrative industries in human history, and it is the most powerful lobbying body. They time and again, write FDA bills that justify their own profiting. They are creating a system that ensures your own profit. You create a system where you say it's okay as long as half people, but no more get access to this drug product. That's ethical. Now. You want to pass nationalized health care. You want to pass uh, single-payer systems. The company has every incentive to go and blow that up because if that comes to be, then maybe you'll start to get better care. And if you start to get better care, it'll be a lot harder for me to come back the next time and run my next study in your country. So what I'm saying here is that all actions have spillover effects. It is a naive view. It's a view that you tell your children at night so that they can go to sleep in peace that you tell yourself that this is ethical. It's not that ethical, it's not that simple. You are creating a set of incentives in the marketplace that will haunt you. You're playing a devil's bargain. I strongly disagree. I would urge people to open their eyes. Now, why are their eyes closed? Taking money. Listen, listen, I gotta say, you know, I hear many people, and I've talked to many people, including many junior people whose heart's in the right place, and they talk about reform from within. They say, VP, you know, you're, you know, half in epidemiology, you're half in oncology, you're attending this hospital, that hospital, you're doing all these things, but you know, you don't primarily run clinical trials, you do other things. I say, absolutely true. That's absolutely accurate because my interest is policy broadly and evidence and meta-evidence and thinking about very complex dynamical things. And that's, I view in my short life, uh, you know, all our lives are f- to some degree short, um, you know, my short career, short life that I want to maximize what I am uniquely good at thinking about. That's why I'm not going to spend all my time getting bogged down in one thing or the other. They're saying, I'm different. I am going to play the game and I'm going to run the trial and do the phase one and the phase two and the phase three. And you know what? Someday I'm going to be there and I'm going to tell them that I'm going to fix the system from within. And I applaud them. I wish them well. I hope they succeed. I don't know that they will, but I hope they will. I'm pessimistic, but I hope they. I do hope they succeed. But I also hear people saying that, well, we're working to reform the system from within. And they have one difference. 
they're taking money from the pharmaceutical firms. Go to openpayments.com and start looking people up. And if somebody is taking $100,000 per year in personal payments, those aren't research payments, those are payments that go directly in their pocket for consulting for pharmaceutical firms, how can I, in good conscience, believe you are really trying to reform from within? You're taking hand over fist money. You're complicit in making excuses for bad trial designs. You're saying the FDA made me. The IRB said it was okay. You're making excuses for one of the greatest ongoing ethical failures in medicine in this moment, unethical control arms that you would not randomize your own mother or father to. You're making excuses for that and you're pocketing all this money and you're saying there's no link between the two. I'm just pocketing the money because I'm advising them. I'm trying to do my best. Wake up. You are naive. You are a naive person. That's not the way money works. That's not why the money is being given to you. And if you really want to reform the system from within, prove it to me. Don't take any more money. Stop taking the money. Stop using the medical writer. Prove it to me. I don't see that. In fact, we've done a lot of papers on this. We've done papers in JAMA Internal Medicine led by Jenny Gill where we calculate the fraction of increased salary from pharmaceutical payments to oncologists. It's non-trivial. It can go as high as like 10 or 20% in a fraction of doctors. We've done payments on uh, the doctors who testify at the Oncology Drug Advisory Committee meeting, and they are the highest earners with 160000 plus. Others have done studies on the NCCN. We've done studies on the highest earners. Conflict of interest is the marinade that oncology is sitting in. If you read the book Malignant, I've got two chapters in section two that merely point out this fact. And that's why, because the conflict is so pernicious. Because the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's primary source of revenue is the Drug User Fee Act, which, the, which of course, the lobbyists for the pharmaceutical firms have cleverly in, engineered. Because the number one occupation of somebody who leaves the U.S. FDA as a medical reviewer in, the, in oncology drug products is to work for the biopharmaceutical industry. Because the money is so omnipresent, this is why I'm very pessimistic. I do not believe that reform will come from within. I strongly would disagree it comes from within. It will come from outside. Now, why will it come from outside? One, America is deeply fractured. There's a lot of political instability. There is still opportunity for a populist to, to come. And the thing about populists is being a populist doesn't always mean you have to be a populist on the bad issues or the, the issues that bring out hate in people. You can be a populist on the good issues, the issues that we all agree about, which is we're spending so much on healthcare. We're not getting what we deserve. There's a rot in the field of healthcare. All of these doctors, not all, many of these doctors were setting the guidelines and fueling the system that perpetuates the high drug prices are on the take from the pharmaceutical firms in a very sick, a sick feedback loop. This is a broken system, and I think a good populist can come in and smash it, and I think it will be smashed in my lifetime, I suspect. Um, it is the perfect issue. Healthcare is the perfect issue that you can actually have a populist take strong action and actually bring people together. You can have a very strong political agenda. There have been mistakes have been made, you know, particularly by people who, with whom I identify on the political left. Mistakes have been made because we on the political left were supposed to break the massive role of big business in this space and we have continually capitulated to them over and over again, engendering their riches. We could have broken them. They will be broken, I suspect, in my lifetime. It's just a natural thing. To, that this would be a great thing to break because it would be giving people back something that they truly want. It will be a very, something you feel, everyone will feel when their premiums start to fall. This system is ripe for breaking. It won't be fixed from within. Are you? Don't be naive. It will not be fixed from within. A few trialists asking for a few control arms will not fix it. The system must be shattered. And the simple ways to fix it once you shatter it will be, of course, the biopharmaceutical firm, they 
uh, should provide their drug and provide money, but the actual design and conduct of the clinical trial must be moved towards third-party people. Those third-party people must be non-conflicted. You should read um, the fourth section of Malignant Book. There are many such great ideas. The CDC and FDA have legal and statutory authority to already do a lot, but there's more they could do with a few bills that I suggest in the book. Um, and a number of other changes. And what you do is you don't change the whole system. You know, you don't change it. You break the part that needs to be broken, which is that link between the money and the outcome. You put firewalls. You keep the system that the the industry seeks profit. That's very good. But you turn the profit. You know, you put the leash on the dog and point it the way you want it to go. Uh, you know, you, you you push the system the way you want it to go. You keep the profit incentive. That's what makes it hungry and churn. But you reorient the vectors of what it takes to earn the profit. Anyway, I describe it at length for, you know, 50 or 100 pages in that book. I won't, re I won't belabor the point. But my point is that I truly do not think that reform can come from within. There's too much money at stake, and that money is only justified. The only thing that's going to continue to come from within are excuses. Excuses like, well, even though the trial doesn't help the U.S. because we don't use the controller, I mean, even though the trial doesn't help the countries that ran the study because they can't afford the drug after the fact, at least the trial helped 50% of people who took the drug on the study. That's the kind of thin excuse that we are really incentivizing right now. Trialists who are getting tens of thousands of dollars, who are smart, the wheels in their little head are spinning. How am I still a moral agent in this broken system? How am I still a moral agent? And they come up with bullshit excuses like this. What they don't think is that even a first-pass interrogation of that view would reveal that it would lead to uh, secondary and third-order effects that they themselves would not endorse. For instance, the effect I say, which is the company now has an incentive to keep the price high there. They don't need the market share in any of these countries, and the countries are only going to pay a pittance. They might as well crank up the drug price so high that nobody gets it so they can go back again and again and again and run their clinical trials and move the drugs up. It's beautiful for moving drugs up because you can't afford the drug second line, so I can run a nice, clean, frontline versus never study. Boom. Winner, winner. I can run a study of second, uh, a different type of product versus none of this on the back end. The better the back end therapy, the more we quote salvage the OS because post protocol therapy was better than expected. I, none of that stuff. I cranked up the price. I prevented you from doing that. You don't even see. You are really incentivizing that system. Last thought. And this is a, this is a, I think I'm going to put a difficulty high in this video because I think at this point it's crossed into the high difficulty. We're getting into the nitty gritty of policy. This is Mani Moyudin. He's a smart guy, good guy. Um, as I told him, what is this, a motorcycle gang outside my house? No, what is, what's going on out there? Uh, as I told him, uh, he's a man, uh, he's a unique man in this world because he's a man with a strong sense of ethic. And there are few people always born who have a strong sense of ethic, and it's very hard for them to perturb their sense of ethic. He has that sense of ethic. Um, and I think it's also, it's a, like all things, it's a blessing and a curse because I'm sure it gives him a lot of grief when he sees things like this. I'm sure he actually physically feels uncomfortable when he sees it. But here's what he tweeted. If you want a drug in maintenance and you are enrolling your first patient in 2022, a trial is powered for PFS. Lenalidomide is not, it's an appropriate control. We know you get better PFS with Len plus Carfilzomib before you even run your own um, patient before you even enroll your first patient. What's he saying here? There's an ongoing maintenance study of teclistimab, which I've done in the last video too, and lenalidomide versus lenalidomide for maintenance my myeloma with a primary endpoint of PFS. Now, of course, anyone who does a maintenance trial with a primary endpoint of PFS, well, their brain is broken because why would you continue an indefinite therapy and more drug merely to delay the time until progression? That's a guarantee. That's almost a tautology. What you want to do is prove that by taking more drug upfront rather than reserving it for later, I actually live longer as a result. So it's a pretty stupid endpoint. He knows that, and that's his first point. 
But he's saying he's got you in a catch-22 because we also we already know carfilzomib Len has a longer PFS than Len alone. We know Len versus observation has an OS benefit and a meta-analysis in some studies. And what he's saying is that either OS is your endpoint, in which case this trial teclistimab R versus R is acceptable in the maintenance setting, um, or PFS is your endpoint, in which case you got another problem. Your control arm is not ethical because we know it's not the best PFS out there. So either you have a delinquent control arm or you have a negligent endpoint. Which one is it? He's got you. One of the ways you're screwing up, and he, he's absolutely correct. He's created a logic trap that is trapping people like, um, you know, like a, like a mouse trap. Got him. Um, and uh, it, it's really inescapable, his, his logic. I see some vague excuses being made. I mean, I just want to say that teclistimab, good luck with that rate of infection, as I described in the last video, good luck coming into a maintenance setting and pairing with an imid and think what you're going to get when you take that for a prolonged period of time. It ain't going to be pretty. And one wave of COVID hits, your trial is going to be halted for death. I mean, you, as you see, I mean, go back to the last video, watch that. But this is important. This is important to what he's pointing out, that this is part of the rot. And somebody, I think, said, well, you know, the IRB approved this study. IRBs, IRBs, they're a useless, I mean, they're virtually useless. They rarely have anyone on it with the competence and training to really truly interrogate all these articles. The mere fact an IRB said something was okay doesn't mean it's okay. It is a it is a mere formality. There's so many IRBs, they're for-profit IRBs. Somebody's going to say it's okay. It's up to the doctor to say what's okay. I won't say it's okay until I've read it in full and processed it in full, and then only then will I say it's okay. Okay, might be a while. So that's the video. That's the thoughts on this. What else do I want to say? Um, you know, I think that uh, this entire argument, um, I mean, the, the idea that the world is not fair and all the drugs are not available, absolutely true. We need to look ourselves in the eye and ask ourselves why that is the case. And the reason that's the case is that American pharmaceutical firms and European pharmaceutical firms, for the most part, set astronomically high prices. They do that because they're able to justify those prices. They've created a system in the United States where there is nearly no downward pressure. Um, many groups, including Medicare by law, has to cover all of these drugs, including anything NCCN2A or higher, regardless of price. Uh, they can't negotiate. They can't say no. That's not a market. That's a that's a that's a ransom situation. And as long as that's the the case the real question is why don't the drug companies charge more and more and more and the truth is they do but like the frog being lowered into like being the frog being boiled it doesn't jump out when you heat the water slowly and so they jack up the price at about nine to twelve percent per annum year over year and boil us slowly that's the method and there's no way to break that system they also have an incentive to make sure that these drugs are unaffordable globally because that allows them to use the global world as a stomping ground, a playground to validate drug products and backdrops that do not reflect the U.S. Now, why would you want to do that? It's a lot easier to get a win. Easy. It's a lot easier to get a win when there's no other drugs available. And what you're saying is, well, that's okay. That's ethically okay. And why is it ethically okay? Well, you know, of course, it doesn't really inform the U.S. because that's not really our backdrop standard of care. And of course, these people in these countries, they don't get access to the drug on the back end because if, if they could have afforded um, Quisartinib, they would have already been buying Midastorin. So of course, that's not going to be the case. But at least 50% of people, at least those seven people on the trial, they got something. But you don't see that what you're doing is you're creating a terrible incentive that for seven gains here, you're going to have huge casualties on the back end. You, you don't see the trade-off you're making. And that's the problem. It's like a lot of things in life. You see the thing you're counting and you don't see the damage you're doing that you're not counting, you're not even thinking about. And I think that's the crux of the failure. 
you're also actually created a system where if there's a war, they can go do anything. You want you really want to live in a world where where that that's what you're saying that if there's a war, if there's an embargo, if a nation is on the brink of starvation, somebody can go in there and they can test a, a novel antibiotic against observation for pneumonia, you know, or a, a stenting a STEMI versus nothing. You know, you're really gonna you're really gonna want to be in that world or blood thinner versus no blood thinner for submassive P. You really you really want to live in that cruel, dark, exploitative world. It sounds horrible to me, but that's what you're saying. And I don't think you really want that. I don't think you really thought through what you're saying. And I think the reason you're not thinking through is because you are addicted to that pharmaceutical payment. You're addicted to the oral sessions at the meetings. You're addicted to the KOL lifestyle and the KOL career. And I suspect that internal reform will not happen. It's unlikely. It won't happen in my lifetime. But I suspect external reform will. And the system will break. And I suspect that... Um, you know, if it were me, I just want to be on the good side of the break because I think the break will be painful. And um, there may be, I don't know. I mean, I, I can imagine ways in which that ooh, this, you would try to reorient. But I think one thing I would do, I mean, that uh, not me, but uh, um, a, um, a populist reformer might do is actually make it illegal to receive payments from the biopharmaceutical firms because it's already a de declaration, but maybe it ought to be illegal. I think that would be very popular among people. I mean, can you imagine a charismatic politician raising the point that the person who's forcing Medicare by law to pay for maintenance drugs is the person who's being paid by the company that is profiting from the maintenance drugs, a sick, a, a sick sort of ring of corruption? And you should read the article, um, Closed Financial Loops in Biomedicine, uh, uh, um, uh, Conflict of Interest or Corruption, uh, which I published, I think, in the Hastings Center Report um, uh, with uh, Kevin De Jesus. Um, from uh, Puerto Rico, um, you should read that article. Uh, I think people will more and more see that, and it's just such a great way, such a very clear and vivid example of of, of what looks like, which has the appearance of corruption. And so I think it will have a lot of traction in the public. And so that's yet another reason why I would urge people to uh, get ahead of it by cutting off personal financial payments from biopharmaceutical firms. There's a simple rule. If there's an entity in the healthcare space and they profit from the unidirectional healthcare choice, this is a key, unidirectional healthcare choice. Think about what that means. Unidirectional healthcare choice means they only profit from one but not the other, selling Revlimid but not not selling Revlimid. There's a very unique set of companies that do that, testing companies, device companies, drug companies. You need to totally cut your tie with the unidirectional profit centers. That's different than, you know, if you're if you want to, I don't know, be a correspondent for CNN. CNN does not prop they profit from a lot of things like clicks, but they don't profit from the unidirectional promotion of any particular viewpoint or agenda. They for all their followers, as much as I hate CNN, I'm just saying the unidirectionality is the key to the conflict situation. Okay, those are my thoughts. That's what you get on this channel. Like, subscribe, comment, leave a message below. If you're listening on the audio feed, what were you doing? Get on the video. There were some good slides there. And, uh, and I'm going to label this podcast difficult because I think it gets into the weeds on healthcare policy. Until next time.